Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Founders Edition. Today, we welcome Anant Bardwaj. Anant is a first-time technical founder who, against all the odds, built one of the fastest-growing unicorns in the industry. In this episode, we take you through the unique story of a boy who was born in the most remote parts of India, who was later recognized by Goldman Sachs as one of the 100 most intriguing CEOs on the planet. In this episode, we explore the importance of finding the use cases that appeal to the masses. We take you through a step-by-step guide of how to build an ecosystem and how incentivizing your sales organization can change the selling behaviors which drive business outcomes. This is his playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Anant Bardwaj. Anant, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, great to be here. It's an absolute honor to have you in the show today, Anant, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. By way of an introduction, Anant, you are currently CEO and founder of a very disruptive and very topical startup, uh, a unicorn within the uh, applied AI space, really, really having a huge impact um, in, 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 in that world right now, a very exciting organization. Um, but Anant, what's really interesting about your story is that you came from a very humble beginning, right? You, you, you came from a place where, you know, those opportunities weren't there and yet you're here today having founded something which is tremendously you know, incredible what you've kind of where you are already. And, and, and what's most exciting is that there, there is still so, so much more to conquer. So just take us back to, to the beginning. How did it all kind of start? You know, take us back to, to, to your journey. Yeah, um, I will give you a quick like life history. Um, and then of course, focus more on um, the company journey. So I grew up in India, uh, in a very rural part called uh, Nalanda, which is in Bihar. And at that time, uh, there was no electricity or phone or any of those things there. So I grew up in a village where you literally like wake up and go to the farm, get the vegetables. Uh, you have cows, that's how you get milk. Uh, and in order to cook food, you basically burn some wood or you have those you know, gasoline stoves that you put some gas inside and that's how you, you cook food. Um, and uh, there are some schools that you can basically walk to uh, and medium of instruction was Hindi, but they still teach you the same subject. They still teach you like, you know, basic science, math and all, all of those things. It's, it's just that the language that you use for learning, uh, those concepts are in Hindi. Um, and I think for the first 13 years of my life, uh, I actually uh, stayed in that village uh, and it was, late 1999 when my grandfather got sick and in order to get medical treatment uh, we ended up moving to a city called Pune uh, which is pretty good good city I mean you have almost everything world-class you, you can get there so my first struggle was primarily adjusting to this like 
new environment because um, you know all the medium of instruction there was English, and I never studied English, uh, and it was it wasn't that good. That good. I mean, you you basically sort of like uh, feel that you know you are at the you know back end of the class like you you like and when you have been used to be like someone who always used to be uh in the top like three four five so but uh but it was it was still you know like a good challenge to to accept and uh, i didn't do that well but i did okay uh because especially because i struggled with the language but in a couple of years i think um you know things things became more normal I wanted to go to army because my father was in army uh, and my grandfather was also in army. So that's something that had already existed in, in the family. And I appeared for, uh, you know, exams to sort of like get into the Indian defense, uh, but got rejected because of color blindness. Uh, so that was not good. Um, and one other thing that also I, I had huge interest for was literature and poetry. Like I would learn language and try to write things. Um, so one other option was I become, you know, a writer who writes, you know, scripts, literature, poetry. But my parents felt that is not the best career move or the best career choice. So my sister got me admitted into a college um, that had just started in India. So they had never graduated anyone. So this was like, you know, three years old college. They had gotten a few students in, but no no class had graduated yet. So they were looking more for students than students looking for them. Uh, and I had not appeared for any of these exams. So uh, my sister got me admitted to one of these one of these colleges. So I accidentally ended up getting into computer science. However, uh, I really liked computer science as a subject. I think you could do, because what it does give you is it gives it gives you a tool set to create new things, and I loved writing poetry and stories and you know uh, sort of uh, scripts. Uh, it's just that language is different. Language is programming language. You can still do a lot of creation there. Uh, so I got hooked into it, and uh, once I graduated, I got a job at a company called uh, BMC Software, uh, which is I think a U.S. based company, and they had a branch in 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 India. Um. But at the same time, I think this was like 2010, uh, there were a lot of new startups that were popping out of Silicon Valley. And that's when I saw like Facebook and a bunch of these companies. And a lot of, if you look at the root of those companies were Stanford University. So I was like, it must be, you know, great universities. So like, can I get in there? My academics were not that good, but uh, I think when I applied to a bunch of universities, I got rejected from most of those, but somehow Stanford admitted me, which was a surprise. I wasn't expecting it, but sometimes you get lucky. And I think that was one of those lucky things that that, that happened to me. And I moved to Stanford. Uh, again, this was a new environment, but moving to Stanford was not that much a struggle. I had already studied computer science subjects. They were not that different. And I, I did reasonably okay. Um, however, what happened was I spent the two years uh, sort of like mainly taking a lot of classes. And that was good that I did well in the classes, but the whole purpose was to come and go, come and start a new company. And now I'm done with Stanford Masters and I haven't, I haven't done anything to start a company. And I was like, oh, I wasted this whole opportunity. And that's when I got this advice from a friend, which is like, you know, if you don't know what you want to do with your life, okay, I had the option of going to industry, but that wasn't the ultimate goal. 
So the advice that I got is just go do a PhD because that gives you a fail-safe environment to really uh, experiment with your life. So I applied to a bunch of places for PhD and I wanted to go to UC Berkeley because that's pretty close to the Bay Area. And there were a lot of cool stuff that was happening there. But both the professors that I wanted to work with, uh, they both were starting their own company. So Jan Stoika was starting this company called Databricks, which is one of the you know, very famous companies now. And Joe Hallestein was another professor that I wanted to work with. He was starting another company called Trifacta. So I was like, ah, so now I cannot work with them because they both are going to be busy with their own company. So I ended up going to MIT. Uh, so that's how I ended, ended up there. One thing that I did was I made it very clear to my professors and advisors that my goal wasn't to you know, do research and become faculty in academia. I just wanted to try different things and you know, convert one of these ideas into a company. And they were very, very supportive. So in general, they gave me all the freedom that I needed. And over the next three and a half years, um, I did about like five or six different projects. And one of those projects was Data Hub which basically was exploring this idea of like how you can abstract these complex data so that people can build any application on top of it. So you kind of like build an operating system that under the hood can abstract all of the different kinds of data sets that you have. And then you give a simple like application layer for the end users. And uh, a lot of people wanted to use it. And that's when, uh, you know, MIT, it's pretty like popular. So a lot of people come there, a lot of VCs come there to just see what cool stuff is happening. So there was a venture cap, uh, there was one venture capitalist who was visiting and he said, you should drop out. This looks super cool. You know, like you, you would have no problem. I would fund you. I'm like, that sounds very exciting. And I actually did take the advice seriously. And in the summer of 2015, I left MIT and then met that guy. And I was like, Hey, I've dropped out. So like, where is the money? And he basically says, Oh, you know, I have to talk to my partner. And <laughs> And we never ended up getting that, that VC money. But the good thing was sometimes, you know, <laughs> when you have already made a decision, you have no choice. So I'd already dropped out. So I had no choice. So I basically literally went and talked to a number of investors. And I asked uh, Matej Jaharia, who uh, was the co-founder of Databricks, who had just moved to MIT as a faculty to introduce me to the, their investors. So he introduced me to Andreessen and uh, NEA, like Pete Sonsini, who was in the board of the Databricks. And uh, they both decided to invest because of some conflict and reason could not do that round. So Pete from NEA connected me with, to Jerry from Greylock. And that's how <laughs> Greylock and uh, NEA did the seed round. And Andreessen, of course, came later to do the Series A. And that's how the company was founded. So a lot of things just fell in place and a lot of luck along the way. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story. You say it's a lot of luck, but at that time, were you just kind of feeling your way through or did you have focus and, you know, what, 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 did you have to be relentless or, or did you kind of think that, you know, was, were things just kind of coming together in, in, in quite, a, quite a natural way? Uh, I don't think, you know, like there is always going to be certain things that will fall in your way, certain things that would not fall in, in your way. I don't think it's always everything falls in your way. Uh, and I'll tell you some some things that basically didn't go that well, but you know, sometimes you just have to trust something. You have to take a leap of faith. So when I was leaving India and moving to moving to the U.S., uh, Stanford is a very expensive school, and in India, my dad wasn't you know you know army job did not pay you a lot of money. So 
they had bought a house basically from all of their savings when my dad had retired. And we didn't have money to pay the tuition to Stanford. So in general, one of the biggest risks that I think my parents took was they sold the house to have enough money that would pay for one quarter tuition of Stanford. You still wow. have the risk that you might get kicked out of Stanford quarter number two if you don't figure out how to get some, you know, teaching assistantship or a research assistantship. And and that I believe is a big risk because like you still don't guarantee that like you will get to finish your degree. That was a huge risk, but he still, but they still, um, you know, took the risk of selling the house and sort of like putting all of that in making sure that I was able to attend Stanford. And of course, at the end of quarter one, I was able to find, um, you know, the RA ship that would pay for the rest of the tuition or rest of the sort of the degree. But that was the huge risk that, that I think my parents took. Uh, second, uh, once I basically dropped out, uh, one of the problems that you have as an international student is you are on a visa in the United States. And if you are on a student visa, you can only study. You cannot go and do work. So when I dropped out from MIT, I got this VC money and I was still on the student visa. And then I applied for the, and once you drop out, you don't have student visa anymore because you're not studying. Uh, I applied for, you know, H1B, which allows you to do the work. And I, that got rejected. And it got rejected pretty publicly in the sense that I got the legal notice that you have failed to establish the employer-employee relationship and therefore you have to leave the country. Wow. So now you have raised this money uh, and you have the notice from USCIS to go and leave the country. And that's where I think certain things just fall in your way. And MIT, I'm, I'm grateful for that institution because they literally... Um, and I don't know how they were able to do this, where they readmitted me. So they admitted me back into MIT and then gave me this special like um, provision of, uh, you know, CPT where I could sort of like not have to study at MIT and still go start this company. And, um, and, 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 and I could, I could, stay in the country. And it took almost like, I think, one and a half years to go and legally challenge that decision from the U.S. government and eventually reverse that decision. So I was able to do that. But for that one and a half years, MIT supported me so that I could be here. Um, so a lot of things basically, you know, sort of smoothly fall in the way. Some of them don't, and you just have to deal with it. So, uh, but in general, those all things worked out pretty well. So, so obviously you, you've established this this startup. You're backed by some tier one, you know, major major VCs right now. You're a first time technical founder. What were the kind of the, the the first learnings, you know, in order to really launch your your company? What 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 were the kind of the first learnings? And you know, t take us to that moment where you're really kind of establishing those foundations. Um, what were the kind of the key priorities? What were the key things you were thinking about? And what are the things that perhaps you were struggling with, you know, at, in, in those early days? Yeah, a number of things, I think. So when we started, this idea was like you have this operating system that sits on top of data sets that you can build applications. And we literally had no idea who will use it. Why would somebody use it? It just looked like a good 
academic or research pursuit that we could go and explore. And it made sense at MIT, but does it have a lot of commercial sense? And we didn't even know what huge case it will solve. Who are the persona who will use it? And I was surprised, I mean, and you know, I'm thankful for that, that some of the top tier VC just took a bet on this idea that literally had no commercial application at that point in time. So uh, I started the company and we really had no idea who will use it, but I understood at least one persona, which is students, because I came from academia. So our first set of customers were literally giving free <laughs> like product to all the professors and students where they can go and do a bunch of these data analysis and do a lot of work, uh, but they don't pay you money. And, uh, and we got a lot of good universities using this product, MIT, Stanford, Columbia, University of Chicago, and all those running many of the classes on, on Instabase. So Jennifer Bidham, who is the Dean of Engineering at Stanford, she was doing this like worldwide tour where she would teach Stanford classes across the globe. And she used Instabase for teaching those classes. So this was all good, except we were making no money. Uh, and some of the apps that we had early on was one of the app called Notebook for data science, and that was used by universities a lot. And then uh, an app for visualization where you could visualize some data sets, like Tableau kind of things. And then you had we had an app called Refiner, which can basically convert messy data into more structured data. So those were the three or four initial apps that we had built. So we were doing a demo and we, we basically, at that time, anyone who will come to Instabase, we will force them to see our demo. So that's, that's, that's what we used to do. <laughs> so there was this guy who was visiting from an HR company called Genefits and we were showing the demo and the guy said, you know, I'm sure you can take a log file and convert this into a nice table and do analysis. Our problem is not log files. You know, Splunk does that pretty well. So our problem is, we get a bunch of these health insurance plans that come in PDF, and we want to enable our users to come and compare their plans so that they can pick the best plan. And we are like, we don't read PDF and all that kind of stuff, but we've got an operating system. So why don't we add a PDF reader that will convert that into text and you can use the same technique to extract all this data. And the guy was fascinated by this. Like it, it wasn't a properly built product, but the technology was just so good that when he could see that I can take this text from PDF and extract all the stuff into table, he was like, this is super, super cool. And you know, it's a public information that Jennifer's went, went through a bunch of leadership change during that time. So the deal never happened, but it gave us a new demo. So now we will do that demo to everyone. So there was this guy from Lending Club who was, in some you know, family gathering and we were just doing this demo and he saw this and he was like, you know, we don't do this like PDF that comes in like nice format, but at Lending Club, when people apply for loans, they take this camera picture of their pay stub and bank statements and tax form and we have to make a decision about loan. So can you handle images? We're like, we don't have OCR and all that kind of stuff, but we are an operating system. So we are going to <laughs> add all those apps. So we ended up adding those apps and, uh, and that's when basically we figured out the huge case that will make us money. And of course, after that, you know, Standard Chartered, Capital One, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, City, JP Morgan, a bunch of the big players became our customer because they all had the same problem that Lending Club had. Now, if you can solve the problem for like, let's say lending, you can also solve problem for onboarding a customer or claim processing because they all have to deal with taking a bunch of these documents, convert this into you know, structured data, making a decision. 
So that's how he stumbled upon like one use case that would become a landing use case for several different industry. And key lesson that we learned, I think, uh, in which you sort of like alluded to that how we figured out the product market fit, the really, the, you know, we really did not know, you know, what product people will use, but we always had this like um, ability to engage with the world in a very open way. So when somebody came up with a new problem, we did not say like, it is not like, you know, we don't want to listen to it. We always asked this question, like, why this problem exists? Can Instabase is an operating system? Is, can something that can be built on Instabase that will solve it? So while we were very, very bad at predicting the future, we were very, very good at being fearlessly experimental. So that whenever, whenever these new opportunities came along, we engaged with it and we engaged with it with open mind. And that's what allowed us to stumble upon something that would become a product, you know, initial like product that would go on to scale to several large enterprises, which gave us the foundation to go and build a bunch of new things. Thanks for that, Anand. Um, so when should you stop focusing on new product lines and focus on what you've created? And are there dangers of over-innovating? This, this is a great question. And I think I got this advice from Martin Casado from Andreessen. And I think this is such a good one sentence uh, you know, advice that could be applicable to so many different people and so many different companies, which is, Huge cases precede the product, product precedes the platform, and platform precedes the ecosystem. So don't try to build a product unless you really understand what the huge case that it solves. Don't try to build a platform unless you have a real product. Platform basically means when the value can be created by someone other than you. If you yourself cannot create a value by, using, by building a right product, how you can think you can build a platform? And the last one is, you can't create an ecosystem when you don't have the right platform and value can be created by someone else. So I think that people should keep experimenting until they figure out what the use case is and what the product is. Because until that time, closing your mind that I'm going to make this work might not work. So there is a time when this fearlessly experimentation is useful. And once you have figured out that the problem is real, the use case is real, and you have the right product, that can be scaled. Now your focus should shift towards how to scale the market and all of those kind of things. But until you find product market fit, you basically have to keep innovating until you really stumble upon that that product. So Anand, take us back to that point that you realized that you had created a product and a solution that was solving a big enough problem. Basically, when we started, right, we really did not, we, we started with this idea that we had a platform, we can build any application. That was the whole idea. This is Data Hub, you can build any application on top of it. But what application? You can build anything, but, you know, what application, right? Log file parser, but Splunk does that pretty well. Like, why would somebody want to build on Instabase? That was the question. A notebook, but a bunch of other tools have the notebook. Um, you know, visualization, Tableau and, you know, Looker and a bunch of companies give you visualization. Why you need to build that on Instabase? So when we started as a research prototype, this idea of data having an operating system or a platform, what wasn't very, very clear was the exact use case. And we started with a student one, but then it became very clear that there is not much money there. So even if the problem is real, how do you monetize it? Because students want to use free stuff, right? And that's when I think we 
basically started doing a lot of these demos and I talked about this whole story of finding this understanding of documents, which was a big problem that was so repeatable across so many different industries. So once you have found a problem that is real for one company, now you start asking this question, how many similar companies exist? Like if I can sell to, let's say, Lending Club, can I sell to the Standard Chartered? If the answer is yes, if I can sell to Standard Chartered, can I sell to Bank of America and JP Morgan and Goldman and Citi? If that is yes, what about other vertical? Can I sell to like MetLife? Can I sell to AXA? Can I sell to some of the insurance companies? Once you figure out, oh, this problem also applies there. Now, can we go and sell this to, you know, bunch of CPG customers like Colgate or PNG and so on? So what you do is once you once you figure out the problem is real, then you try to define which all verticals that is real, how big mm. that market is. And that basically gives you a really good sense of whether you want to like double down on that or not. Because it could be that you build something that it only applies to like, you know, lending club and does not solve anybody else's problem. And in that case, you might still stuck into the same problem. So it's very, very important that early on, once you stumble upon that, you know, idea that this problem is real, quickly test that it apply to wide industry and it is big enough market. And, uh, and that's when I think it becomes tricky. So I believe that founders should do that journey themselves. Like they should go and figure this out with about five, six customers. And the reason why is because there are just so many variants, so many stuff that you have to figure out that if you build a sales team, they might not have those nuances and you will end up wasting a lot of time and, and you know effort. So once you have figured out, once you have built a playbook of selling to like, let's say two customers in banking, two customers in insurance, now you know what the use cases are. Now you know what problems it solves. Then you start with like, you know, creative salespeople who, who are technical, who basically can wear multiple hats and see that someone other than the founder can do the same thing. And once you have done this, then building and scaling the sales organization is, is how like uh, we have seen work for us. For many companies, look, use case is clear, market is clear, and you can, you can, you can go with the right strategy from day one. So I'm not saying this is the only way to do it, but when the market is not clear, when the problem space is not clear, when you really do not know who will pay for it, in general, I think founders need to uh, sort of like figure out those things before they go on building a go-to-market team. And that, that's really fascinating. So obviously, you know, you're going into the customers and you're kind of discovering a use case at what point do you actually start to build a product? Obviously, do you build the product and then test the use case or or are you having conversations to validate with the customers first before you're building these additional kind of applications? What 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 was your process around that? This is a this is a very good question because I think these are not do like sequential things. You have to do both in parallel because if you don't have any product, no customer would want to have conversation with you. The customer need to believe when you're talking to them that you have got something that will solve a very key pain point that they have, even though it's not like fully complete, but it still needs to give them complete confidence that you have something that is just so amazing. And, and, and you have to find those kind of customers who actually will work with you to build that right product. So uh, we got lucky that the kind of people that we talked to, the lending club person, I mean, he literally gave us the data. He helped us validate all of those things. But the reason why he did that was because he knew 
that this is a problem that they're spending several tens of millions of dollars per year. And if you're able to show progress in six months, it's going to be great. Because there was no choice. It's not that some other you know, solution existed. And, uh, and we worked with, work with that person to really build something that would solve the problem end to end. And so it's kind of like, you need to have something, but not some basic prototype that basically can demonstrate that you can solve this problem. But then it is not yet enterprise ready. It did not integrate with all the stuff that they need. They need to, you know, see it work certain way that fits into, you know, their workflow. Then those are the things you do by working with them. And once you have done this once, now you go and see that the same thing replicate to three other places, because then you will come up with a general pattern rather than a specific pattern. Because one of the issues that you might run into is you might also build something that only works for that customer and nobody else. And that's a danger. So, so, and that's why like founders need to be involved with the first like four or five customers, because that gives you a really good sense of like, what is the core product and what is this like custom thing that needs to be done for every single customer? And how do you separate those things out so that this custom thing is a very small thin layer that, you know, can be done very, very quickly. And the product is the one that just scales by itself. And that process is very, very important before you actually go into building and scaling GTM. And that's why I highly, highly recommend that founders need to be involved in the sales and delivery and engineers too, right? Like early engineers um, until you have reached at least like five, six customers. So knowing founders, they, they've got this kind of natural um, enthusiasm about, you know, their company, their baby. They're obviously very proud. And obviously when customers or potential prospects start to show an interest in what you're doing, it's really easy to start chasing more use cases and, and where you're getting lots of interest and lots of noise. How do you manage that, the balance between being pulled in lots of different directions where there's lots of different ways you can go, but also being able to focus and execute the ones that really kind of matter. Yeah. And it's important to basically find out customers typically buy your product for one or two things that they could not find anywhere else, right? Because many other things exist somewhere else too. So, and there is this analogy that I think um, Jerry Chen uses, it's called drivers and drags. The drivers are the basically the key thing for which somebody buys it. And you have to really figure out what that key driver is in your product. Like if that piece does not exist, nobody will talk to you. And that is called driver. The drags are bunch of other things you have to do to satisfy the requirement before they can deploy it. Like you need to have like integration with their LDAP. You need to have basically ability to run in some environment or have certain kind of integration, all of those kind of things. You can have all of those, they will never buy it because you don't have the driver, but drags are still important because that completes your product to be able to be useful inside that environment in which they are operating. So this is the role that founders have to play in later product management, which is what are the key drivers and what are the key drags? And you don't have many drivers. It has to be like one or two. And that allows you to separate out the noise versus the, you know, the signal. And, um, and, and that prioritization is the key because you might, because customers might tell you, Hey, can you also solve this problem? Can you also solve that problem? And I think that it's very, very important that you look at which one problem or two problem is applicable across very wide industry, across very wide verticals, across 
several customers where they are willing to pay money and double down on those because there's no point doing this additional use case that only solves you know something for this particular customer because then you are a services company right because then yeah. you end up building that same that different custom things for every single every single uh, customer which is non non ideal so this is a lot of you know so, but early on it, you still have to be with the open mind for the first customer just go and like you know listen to them listen to all of their problems and i think you know there is some intuition that is required like when they tell you the use case you you should ask this question which is who else will need this? Is this also needed at like 20 other customers? And if the answer is no, then you go and have that conversation with the customer. And you can still build it for them because you want to find product market fit, but you need to know that that is not the product. That is that custom piece that is built and which is fine to do two or three times early on to understand the market. So, but should you be doing that like forever? No. And what people end up doing is they have the product and then they have a separate services team that basically does that custom aspect where you charge separately and all that. But being able to understand what is product and what is custom services is an important aspect of building the right product. This is obviously specific, very, very prevalent to yours because you're, you're, you're servicing so many different types of use cases. You're, you're, you're essentially building an app store, right? That, that's essentially what you're, you're doing. So you're almost building lots and lots and lots of products again and again so so if if anything for, for almost every app that you're building you're really assessing this you're you're assessing who else cares time and time again before you're committing to something so i mean that that's quite an interesting it's almost like multiple startups in one platform that is correct which is so and 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 this came from you know our whole <laughs> sort of data hub idea, that whole idea was building more apps and that's what figured out to build those apps, right? OCR and then applying ML and extraction and the workflows. But then what apps we should build versus what apps we should not build? And that becomes an important question. So now, like once we go to the industry and once we look at like lending is a wide enough use case. So now we should build an app because then we can sell to every bank. But then should we sell some specific application form that Goldman Sachs uses for doing something? Likely not, because that's only applicable to Goldman Sachs. So what you actually do is you basically say, this is the public app store where Instabase is going to provide pre-built apps, but also give customers the ability to build their own apps. Because it could be useful that JP Morgan Chase basically want to build 100 apps that is only useful for JP Morgan Chase, and they would be totally fine doing it. And that's where the platform aspect comes in which is all the value does not need to be provided just by us. The value can be provided by someone other than us. And the first someone other than us would be our customer. Can they provide value for themselves on top of our platform? And if that answer is yes, then test that. Like then you say like, oh, you know, JP Morgan Chase can build 100 apps and Bank of America can build 100 apps. This is super cool. Then you go to the third aspect of the app store that you talk about which is the ecosystem. Now, can the app built by JP Morgan Chase be used by Bank of America? Because then the creation is done by somebody else, even consumption is done by somebody else, and you can really create the ecosystem that, you know, is a massive, massive, massive company. And we are still trying to figure out how to create that ecosystem. So what we have done so far is we know our apps work, so we know what are the right products, we know that how somebody other than us, which is our customer can create their own apps, that this is a platform where value can be created by someone other than us. 
ecosystem is still the you know the puzzle that we are trying to solve and you will see some announcement over the coming you know months uh, where we open this app store for third party app developers but uh, that's the journey that you know we have to just keep experimenting and eventually figure out what works and what does not work it's so exciting obviously the potential then is exponential because you're essentially creating a perpetuating ecosystem it's yeah. an app store like you know the the the, the you know an apple app store where it's third parties that are developing the apps that are consumed and you're incentivizing that it is it is incredible what the what the potential could be i'm interested to understand more from a sales go to market because how do you then layer a, a, a sales motion on top of this right how, yeah. you know what, what what tell us a little bit about that so we have made a lot of mistakes in building our go to market Wilson, and uh, and we'll tell you like what we have figured out to work well and what we have struggled with. So, so basically, we got some very very large customers in early customers in uh, late 2019, like basically beginning of 2019. So investors got very like excited, right? You went from 250 thousand dollars revenue to five million in like you know 12 months with some such big name. That's like you know, 10, 10x growth in a single year. So uh, we raised money at the end of 2019, October 2019, uh, at a billion dollar valuation. And the reason why was because people felt we already have great product market fit, we know how to scale, but we did not have a sales team. All the sale was done by me. Um, so what is the first thing you do? So advice that I got is hire a CRO, who will go and hire a bunch of other salespeople and things will just work out to be okay. So we ran a search, we ended up hiring a Seattle and we basically set a goal that we will go from five to 20 million that year. Um, and I did not know anything like, because if you actually think, if I had any understanding of sales during that time, I should have asked this question. In order to go from five to 20, you need $15 million of net new. If you, if you have a salesperson with a quota of 1.5, then you need 10 salespeople fully ramped because they take about six months to ramp. If they take six months to ramp, then that means you need to have 20 people hired on day one for having any chance to hit 15 million of net new, assuming 100% attainment. In general, industry attainment is about you know 70%. That basically means you need something like 30 people hired. Uh, somehow Seattle was confident and we looked at like April, May, and there was only like, no, we had a sales sales team of size one. So I, I asked the person like, how are we going to hit this number? And then I realized that maybe, you know, we made a, we made a wrong hire. So we parted ways. Uh, and then we hired someone, and at, at that time I talked to Jeremy Duggan, who you know is one of the big medic proponent, uh, and uh, Luke Roger was one of his uh, one of his top um, as, you know uh, salesperson. So we ended up hiring Luke around uh, end of uh, August uh, or September of 2020, and he asked the same question: How do you go to five to 20? So if you apply the math, like you have only one or two people hired. If they all hit the numbers, you can only go from five to seven. So literally that year, the year 2020, we went from five million to seven million in terms in terms of our ARR. That was like literally, you know, 
sort of awakening. There was a rude awakening that we got. Like you know, sales is not like you, you can you can just you you have to you have to basically build a proper motion, and that means if you want to put a number. You have to figure out what is the attainment, what is the quota, what is the ramp time. So if you want to, let's say, go from seven to twenty, then if you want thirteen million net new, then you need like some number of people hired and some number of people fully ramped. And we focused a lot on hiring that year, the year twenty twenty. And then of course we hit seven to twenty, and then twenty to you know wherever we are today. Right now we are forty something, so we did pretty well. But that one year was a wasted year. Uh, and and even once you hire the team, right? Like there is different process, there are different stages, right? What works at the first meeting, like so because sales goes through the first meeting deck so that you get business buyer excited, then technical deep dive so that you can make a technical champion. Then you have to define proof of value and then success criteria. Then you have to define the you know, business value and then you have to do the commercial and pricing. Then you have to do legal. There are a bunch of those things where you need the right kind of collateral and all of that stuff for sales to scale. And it took us some time to really understand each of those aspects. Um, and, and once you basically sort of solidify all of those things, then you can scale the sales team because then you can just repeat the same process. But it really takes a lot of iteration for it to, you know, shape itself in a form that can be scaled. It's not, it's not like if founder is able to sell, you hire 20 salespeople and your revenue will get multiplied by 20. That did not happen. Anand, obviously, one of the challenges that you're facing within your organization right now is that you've got lots of different, almost products solving lots of different service, different challenges. From a sales perspective, how were you able to focus your sales organization to go and really be effective? Were you focusing on maybe these are the use cases and the products that we know really are great land ones? Or were you trying to go in and adapt to every customer and find use cases that fit into any environment how were you approaching how were you focusing your sales organization to be effective in that moment yeah so i i, I talked about briefly how we ended up building the sales team so now you basically have at least a sales process and um, you know how do you define like all the ingredients that you need to hit a number more from the logistical perspective now how you can make sales people effective that's the next question right and in general what we have found is that for this to scale you have to define wedge use cases so that you know who to call to. Because before salespeople can do the sell, they have to do pipeline generation. If you want the pipeline generation to be effective, they need to be talking to the right economic buyer. They need to know what conversation to have, to be have one needs to have with the right economic buyer to for them to be able to respond. And so what we ended up doing was we basically started doing this like these are the wedge use case, and we know these are the you know sort of organizations where the where use cases apply. These are the right people that you can reach out to. So our basically sales team became majority of them like literally rinsing and repeating the things that had worked on like some number of customers. And then you have a very small growth team who will go basically and expand other verticals, who will basically look at other use cases. But that team are the people who are more like creative and like can you know understand the ambiguity and can figure out like how to navigate those things and once they have established with two to three customers a particular you know use case then you basically move that into the core sales team that can again follow the same motion but you want to keep that experimental team that can go and you know 
explore things very, very small. And you need to really ensure that those are the people who can, because not everyone can be successful in that environment. That requires very different kind of creativity. So we have a small growth team that literally does a focus on, that literally does focus on expanding our TAM. Like how do you find new wedge use cases? How do you find new verticals? How do you find new industry? But then 80% of our sales team, maybe 90% is literally follow the set of steps, which is here's the wedge use case, here is how do you land. And once you have landed, then customers will tell you like how to expand then so that we can get some signals. And once you see a bunch of customers expanding in a particular way, then we can move those use cases. But typically like all of the discovery of new use cases, new verticals are done only by a very small team called growth team. It's, it's, it's very interesting in terms of, you know, how that that's a process that you've developed and you've, you've started to understand the nuances of how your sales organization really enables the business. It's not about kind of having a standard model. Help us understand what you're doing today, because you're, you're taking quite a bold approach to sales in terms of kind of the go to motion. So where are you with this right now in terms of how sales is 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 driving yeah. growth within your org? So we try not to reinvent the wheel in the core sales teams because we already everything established, like just run the same playbook. But the growth team, we tend to be very creative and bold because that's what allows us to understand new ways of doing things. So we launched this new product called AI Hub. And this AI Hub product is basically self-serve, easy to use, anybody can land you know, and can start doing things. But we really don't know who will use it, why they will use it, how much money they will pay. So we, we just created a growth team that basically literally has no quota target at all. Their target is literally number of logos, that's it. If you want to go and sell like $2,000 deals, go and sell $2,000 deals. And the reason why is because we know that if the customer came to that product and got hooked to it, they're going to automatically start consuming a lot more. And as long as your per unit price does not change, it's great. Like it really does not matter, like whether you're a $2,000 deal or you know $20,000 deal, you're just selling lesser number of units. So are basically the upside does not get affected. So what we are doing this year, and I'm not saying we will continue to do, you know, next year too, it, this is just to understand the market. Because you don't want to incentivize people to close like $1 million, because as soon as you do that, they will, they will only target a specific kind of customer and specific kind of use case. We will not learn certain things that we want to learn. So that's why uh, for this year, we are doing an experiment with a sales motion where in the growth team, the sales people are compensated. You will hit all your quota just by logo target. You just go and close like five logos each or 10 logos each. And once you have done that, after that, you can also get accelerated. So uh, we will report the success or failure of this after later, you know, six or nine months. Uh, but we are pretty excited about this uh, experiment and we'll see where it, where it goes. I mean, it's a, it's a, such a, it's a very bold move and it sounds so simplistic. You're essentially kind of creating critical, critical mass by layering lots and lots of customers rather than saying, I'm going to get one, yeah. one whale. I'm yeah. going to go and get a whole kind of, uh, you know, a plethora of clients and layer them all together. And, you know, that's a much more healthy opportunity for, for growth. But, but when you add it all up, there's actually more, 
there's more substance there and and i suppose you're able to then get more feedback you you, you yeah. mentioned the word signal you're yeah. able to start understanding which apps are working better and help us understand how that's now how you're hoping that's going to help carve the future direction of the business yeah because one of the things that we care about is velocity and that's number one and the velocity of the feedback and signal because as soon as you focus on the dollar price, like if it takes two months extra to close like $100,000 deal versus today that you can close $2,000 deal, people will wait for two months to close $100,000 deal. But the problem is that now you can own, now your sales cycle has become three months rather than one week. That basically means I can only close, you know, let's say each salesperson can only close two or three new logos. So, you know, if I have five people in growth team, I can get input only from 10 customers. I want input from 100 customers. And if I want that, I have to really remove any incentive for waiting. Which basically means if sales, if you're not going to get paid more because you close $100,000 deal versus $2,000, you will close $2,000 because salespeople, you know, at the end, they look at like how they can get compensated. In fact, if you close more logos, you are more likely to hit accelerator than closing larger size deals. And uh, so this basically helps us in three different ways. First one is high velocity sales, our high velocity signal so that we can learn from a lot more customers in a short period of time. Second, we know that consumption is going to go up because this product one, this is our hypothesis that if the customer get hooked to it, they are going to consume more. That basically means our net dollar retention and our expansion is going to be very, very huge next year. So that's number two. And number three is, it also gives us really right, you know, motion. So should we, should the, you know, target price be like $20,000 versus $100,000 versus $5,000? What should be that landing point? And so those are the three key things that we are trying to learn uh, over the next six to eight months before we move that into the core sales team. And I'm not saying that core sales team will have the same, you know, like logo target. They will likely have the quota target with a dollar number. But before we can come up with the right number, this allows us to really validate our hypothesis and come up with a number that is much more data-driven and that we know will help us in the long run. It's a, it's, it's a very, very bold and, but at the same time, you know, what, what, what's really interesting here is that you're allowing your sales organization to drive the behaviors you're incentivizing the behaviors and setting up your sales motion to drive the business outcomes in a very, very prescribed way. And, um, and, and, and that's what's very interesting about this. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I think that um, currently the key incentive that I want to basically sort of encourage people to do more and more is go for high velocity, close as many logos as possible, because once we have that, there is so much more we can learn. And then we can figure out what the right model is. And, um, but you know, this is again, we will know the success or failure of this only after six months. So uh, it's too early to declare this as a great move or a terrible move. Uh, so we will know this in like six to nine months. And, and just to kind of conclude on this, what, what's the big vision here, right? What, what could this become, Anand? What, what, where, where can this go? So the big vision here is that for any ecosystem to be successful, uh, what you want is large number of people being hooked on the platform. 
because then you can encourage or attract developers to come and build because this also helps because if i got 200 logos versus 20 logos even though 200 logos are playing are paying less in dollars versus 20 logos it's much more valuable to me for the ecosystem creation than 20 logos right and uh, and that's why this is the long-term game that we are playing which is can we create such a large number of and different sectors and verticals of players on InstaBase platform where the barrier is as low as possible the barrier of consumption and the barrier of utilization because if i want if i can start paying two thousand dollars that basically means that my barrier of starting of basically using the product is very very low like i can start getting value just by putting two thousand dollars and once i do that then the ecosystem creation becomes much much easier because then developers when they come and they put something they know that somebody can pay them like thousand dollars right so we have to test and validate all those hypotheses so that's the reason why we are running this experiment uh, because the data point that we'll collect will give us a very clear picture of how to build the ecosystem. So, Anand, I think this is the point where we really reflect on what we've heard today, because, you know, you, you started this, this, this session talking about, you know, the humble beginnings, you know, village life, barely having electricity and, 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 and kind of living off the land. And you were somehow able to, to make your way to the, to, 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 university to college in uh, California, uh, Stanford University before then MIT and finding yourself within this kind of VC community that started to back you. And before you know it, you're creating one of the most unique, disruptive, innovative technology companies on the planet. It's just such an incredible story. But to really start to tune in on some of the some of the specific things that I think have really resonated from from this session, the, the whole kind of mindset of developing applications and and around the use cases, I think it's so relevant to so many founders that are trying to work out how do we create product market fit within the companies that we're that we're going to. And, and I think the, the the thing that really jumps out is. It's great that you want us to build this use case, but who else cares about this? And and always having that lens of who else cares to really create something which has impact it, with much more impact, industry industry wide impact, rather than a specific use case, and and being able to really kind of navigate your way through that. I think as a final conclusion here, I think that what's what's really interesting is. You've been able to effectively, or there is a hypothesis that you're able to really create a sales go-to-market, which is enabling the right behaviors within your organization. And, and it's really interesting to see how things do play out, but it, we see it too often that organizations build a sales motion, but they don't really understand what behaviors that's going to drive. But in this instance, it's so prescribed. So it's it's been a remarkable session today, Anand. It's, it's been great to have you on here um, congratulations for, for what you've built so far, but I think it's amazing to see what, what this could be, become. And we're really looking forward to tracking that journey um, onwards and beyond. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had, um, I had a lot of fun.
So to all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, if you like what you've heard, again, please do subscribe to our various channels, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. All the links are in the description below. And we look forward to welcoming you back for another session soon. Thank you.